All right. James chapter 4. Um, we're going to read through a little bit in chapter 5. So we're going to straddle the chapters. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. James says, Come now, you who say, Tomorrow or today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Some tough words, I think, from, from James. So as we come into this, it seems like we're, we're rounding the bend through our walk through the book of James. We've reached the end of chapter 4, moving into chapter 5, and that's the final chapter. All along the way, James has been quizzing us. He's thrown out questions at us. You know, who is wise among you? Can that faith save you? He's been quizzing us. And today he asks us another question. What is your life? But he's been quizzing us and, and instructing us about what true faith and a live faith looks like. Remember, we come to James right after uh, our study of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. Jesus presented to us the way that leads to life. Amen. And in his letter now, James shows us some very practical and sometimes very pointed ways that, you know, what it looks like to walk along the way that leads to life. What does true faith look like? How does true faith behave? A live faith, how does it behave? So we're not quite done with James just yet. We've got a few more weeks left, but I can see the light at the end of this tunnel, we're getting there. In our text this morning, James gives us two problems, as I see it. But first, before we get to the problems that he presents to us, we need to look at how he presents it. There's a bit of a shift in tone here. Um, there's a, a sense of aggression in the language that he uses, a sense of rebuke from the apostle that has thus far been somewhat uh, generous with us, I mean, and, and, and gentle with us, even as he's been pointing out very pointed things and, and calling us out in, in certain sins, he's been gentle with us and, and um, uh, he's uh, been, uh, you know, loving with us, calling us brothers, referring to us as brothers, that's family, that's, that's kindred, you know, there's a bond there. In verse 14, that, that affection 
I don't, I'm not going to say it's not there anymore, but it's, it's harder to see. It's harder to see. In verse 13, he comes into it, and there's like a, a shift in how he addresses his readers. No longer brothers. Now he says, come now, you who say. Listen up, you people who are saying this. And then again in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, come now, listen up, you rich. It's a rhetorical departure from the tenderness that he's had with us so far. I mean, he's been pointed. Remember, he did, he did call us adulterers at one point. He said, you, you know, you, you adulterous people. If you go back and read that earlier in chapter 4, that, that wasn't so much an address to us as it was a warning. I mean, in that whole discourse about, about you know, looking after the things of the world, wanting to be friends with the world, he's still calling us brothers. So that's what warning. He's saying, brothers, look at where you've come to. Look at where you're heading. You're, you're heading towards adultery. That comment was saying, you know, this is what, is, is what you are becoming but in our, our text this morning, there's a definite shift in how he begins his argument and how he addresses his readers. It's no longer, come now, brothers. It's, come now, you who say. So look in chapter 4, four verse 13. Come now. And then again in chapter 5, verse 1, just a few verses later, come now. If I were making the chapter divisions, if I were the ones that were putting in the numbers, right, I would have made the division up in verse 13. So chapter 4 would have ended in verse 12 if I were writing the chapters out, and chapter 5 would have began in verse 13 of chapter 4. Um, there's various reasons for that, but the point is that you can see in these, even though we're straddling two chapters, you can see that this is a two paragraphs of a continuing train of thought but that together they do represent somewhat of a departure from his normal address to his readers. So I have to say this about chapters and verse numbers. Those things aren't there in the original writings. James did not write chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. He didn't write that. No one wrote that. None of the biblical writers did. That all came later, and the only purpose those are intended to serve is geographical. They're coordinates to help us be on the same page when we talk about the Bible. It's to help us to find things. It's the longitude and latitude of the Bible. Beyond that, they have no real meaning. Now, what is wonderful about it is that when they decided to put that stuff in there many, many years ago to give us that, we had men of great wisdom who were able to align chapter and verse numbers with divisions in thought. So very often you'll find a division in thought or a division in setting when you see a new chapter heading or something along those lines. In fact, that's how you're conditioned to read. From, from a very early childhood, you are conditioned. Nearly every other book, piece of literature that you read, when there's a chapter, that, that signif signifies a definite division in either thought or setting. Right? A new chapter, we're talking about a new subject. There's something new going on here. Or there's a new place. We've got to go to a new place. You're conditioned to read that way. So it can be a hindrance for you to read the Bible that way because that's not what those supposed to, or things are supposed to be there for. Does that make sense? So I have, I have software that I use. They have readers' Bibles. They have all that stuff taken out of it. It's just, a, it's just the biblical text. In my software, I can emulate that. I can just take out all the, the chapter and verse headings and all that stuff. So I find it helpful when I'm studying the Scripture to take all that stuff out so I'm not, I'm not framed in by an artificial framework that, that may or may not be 
you know, accurate, right? And I'm bringing that up because we're straddling two chapters here. We're straddling chapter 4 and chapter 5, and the, the tendency when we read our natu natural tendency is to say, well, there's a big division here. But there's not. This is a continuation of thought. And I've probably given you way more information about that than you probably needed. But I needed it to say that this is a continuation of thought. Right? So, together though, these two chapters, they represent a bit of a departure for James. This leads me and other scholars, not that I'm a scholar, but other people who are scholars, to say that when James begins these verses, these two paragraphs in chapter 4 and this one in chapter 5, that he is not necessarily speaking to people inside the faith. He's talking to people outside the faith. Now that, that brings us an interesting scenario because you know that James's letter from the beginning, he's written to the churches in, in the dispersion. He's written to Christians in the dispersion. And all through the letter, he's called us brothers. Brothers, brothers, brothers. But now he says, come now you who say, come now you rich. So that tells me that he's talking to people who are in the church, they're in the fellowship, but are not so much in the faith. Amen. They're in the fellowship, but they're outside of the faith. Outside the faith. How many would agree this morning that there are people who are inside the fellowship, inside the house of God, but in reality they are outside of the faith? Amen. And this is a very dangerous place for a person to be, I think, because it can lead to a false sense of security, a false sense of sonship. When you're accepted in the fellowship without ever being confronted over your sin, your sin becomes righteousness in your eyes and you are blinded even further. You know, I, I pray for my children all the time over this. I grew up in a godly home that honored the Lord. I grew up in, in church but it wasn't until later in, in life that I came to a personal relationship with the Lord. I had a grandfathered cultural relationship with God. I don't want that for my children. Amen. I don't want them to think that they're okay just because dad's heart's right. Amen. They're okay just because they go through the trappings of church. God does not have grandchildren. Amen. He only has children. And at some point, no matter how you know, right I teach them, and no matter how much Christian doctrine I feed to them, and no matter how much we, we teach them that it's important to be connected and involved with the body of Christ, no matter how much of that we give them, at some point they have to commit to Jesus as Lord of their lives. Amen. Amen. They can't love Him through me. They have to love Him for, their, for their, themselves. Amen. They can't serve Him through me. They have to serve Him for themselves. Jesus cannot be a friend of a friend. He is a personal friend that's closer than a brother. Amen. Amen. That's where he must be. So I pray for my girls in that situation all the time. I don't want them to fall into the trap of thinking that just because they're in the, in the house of God, because they're in the fellowship, that they're in the faith. Because those can be, oftentimes they're the same thing, but they can be different. Amen. And that's a very dangerous place to be. You know, at the White House in Washington, D.C., they give tours. 
They allow the public to come in and, and tour the people's house, right? So you go in and you go on this tour, and let's say you make it a habit of doing this tour. You go on this tour every day for a month. You're in the White House every day for a month. That does not give you the right to go into the Oval Office to have an audience with the President. If you try to go in the office to have an audience with the President, what are they going to tell you? You're going to have to leave. You're going to say, depart from me. I don't know you. Then you can say, but I, I've been in your house for 30 days. And now you might look at me and think, well, Jeff, no normal person is going to do that. No normal person is going to say, just because they went on a tour at the White House, that that gives them an audience with the president. They can say, well, I'm best friends with the president. You're right. No normal person will do that. But how many people treat the Lord that way through touring his church? They claim that, and I'm not saying that he is he's closed off to them. If you want an audience with God, you'll get it. He is, his hand is not so short that he won't reach you. He will answer your prayer. He will hear your cry. That's, the Lord is different in every regard in that way. However, for you to take the name of the Lord on yourself because you have toured the house, that don't fly. That's what James is railing against now. You people who are in my churches, in the church of Jesus, who have taken the name of the Lord on yourself, you who say... Come, let's go and plan and do this stuff without giving any thought to the Lord's plans. You've taken this name, but you're not living like you know Him. You say you know Him, but you ain't living like you know Him. Two different problems that He comes to us with in the churches. And all through the, His book, He's been talking about real faith, a live faith, most recently, he's been teaching us about our pridefulness and our need. Remember, uh, two weeks ago, I think, to, be, to humble ourselves before the Lord, how we're not to judge, but instead that we will be judged by the only lawgiver and judge who is able to both save and destroy. And then the shift in verse 13, come now you who say, and throughout this whole section, there's no mention of brothers. I don't, I don't mean to harp on this, but I think it's very significant. He doesn't say, come now, brothers. Here's the problem. It's come now, you who say. So he separated these people out from the people of faith in the churches. He calls them out by their attitude, their approach to life. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Well, now let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not get ahead of ourselves and think that James is condemning them for making plans. That's not what he's doing. Plans are good. Plans are biblical. It is right and righteous for us to look to the future and, and lay out, this is, this is the plan. This is what we're going to do. Jesus said in, in Luke 14, he said that we ought to consider the cost of building a tower when we go to build it. And then he said that you ought to consider the cost of waging war before you just march into battle. That requires planning ahead. It requires making some, certain assumptions about what the future holds. The Bible tells us to consider the ant. You remember that verse? Consider the ant. What does the ant do? Why are we told to consider the ant? Because the ant forages all summer in preparation for the winter. The ant instinctually plans for a day, a tomorrow, that it has no idea is actually coming. But it plans. 
And the Bible regards that as noble and good to make plans. But here we have James who says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And this is where the first problem comes in. He says, you're saying, Let us, let's go for a year and trade and make profit, but you don't even know what tomorrow holds. What do you mean, let's go for a year? You can't even see past tomorrow. Amen. Much less a year out. Isn't that the truth? Don't we know that in our own? We can't see past tomorrow. I remember when COVID started, and we were in the beginning of this whole, the whole pandemic. No one had a clue about anything, right? And we were all just living day to day. I mean, everything shut down, businesses closed, schools closed, weddings were put on hold, funerals got delayed, for goodness sakes. Nothing we had planned for tomorrow was sticking. Tomorrow, we'll deal with that tomorrow. We're going to deal with today, today. That's how we lived in the beginning of the pandemic. Every, all sense of normality and routine just went out the window. It was a crazy humbling reality check that no matter how well we plan, no matter how well we think we have things mapped out, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. My dad, he um, went into the hospital to have what was supposed to be a routine procedure. Something very routine. Do it all the time. He didn't wake up for two months. And then when he did, his, his, everything about his life was different. Miss Mary sitting right back there just three weeks ago. And now she's in a hospital and cancer is assaulting her brain. And the only plan they have for her is, is to just make her comfortable until she, she passes. We do not know what tomorrow will bring. And that ought to give us a great sense of humility Amen. when making these future plans. Then James, he lays it on even more heavily. He says, what is your life? For you're a, a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So it's like you're, you're making all these plans, like you're going to be doing all these great things, but at the end of the day, what, your whole life is just a vapor. Here one minute and gone the next. You know that, that when you get a bowl of hot soup and you sit down in front of you, and it's got that little wisp of steam that comes off, this... That's your whole life right there. Amen. And sometimes you even got to strain to see the steam. That's your whole life right there. That's how significant in the grand scheme of things your life is. Amen. The totality of what you will accomplish. Imagine going to the beach and, and wanting to affect the ecosystem of the beach. And so you take your tweezers and you grab a grain of sand and, and you take that grain of sand off the beach. Have you affected the ecosystem of that beach? Not in the slightest. Now, the little bitty grains of sand around that grain of sand might be a little disturbed, but in the whole scheme of things, you, you've done nothing. That's what James says. What is your life? When compared to all this, he just told us that you ought to be afraid of the judge who can judge for eternity, who can really destroy and really save. And now he says, what is your life? Who are you compared to that? Who are you to judge? Who are you compared to that? The only significance that we have, the only thing that we can lay claim to that will have any lasting, meaningful impact is our place in the kingdom of God. And that only because of our place in Jesus Christ. 
So here we have James saying, you're, you're making all these plans and you don't know what tomorrow will bring. And beyond that, your whole life is just a vapor. So here's the reality or the problem that he presents. You make plans, but you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. You make plans, but your life is just a vapor. Here one minute and gone the next. In verse 15, he gives us the solution. He said, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. If the Lord wills. Now, now if I were handling just this, this end of chapter 4 today, I would have titled the sermon a little bit differently. I would have called it, If the Lord's Willing and the Creek Don't Rise. Y'all, you've heard that, right? If the Lord's Willing and the Creeks Don't Rise. Don't, don't misunderstand me, or, or James. This is not some kind of incantation which is why I would have chosen that title, because people often say that. They just throw those words in there, right? It's not an incantation. It's not a magic spell that we use to suddenly make our attitudes right because our vocabulary is right. It's the same thing as in Jesus' name. That's not an incantation, some magic spell that you add on the end of your prayer to make everything work. They're not just words. James is talking about an attitude, a way of life. Here, specifically, it's the attitude of claiming to be a child of God, but refusing to live like one of His children. Claiming to trust and rely on God, but refusing to trust and rely on God. Y'all, God is my leader, but then you don't let Him lead you. I trust in the Lord, but then when things get tough, you start making your, your own plans and trying to work your way out of it. Or, the, or you throw your hands up and say, where is God? So James says that we ought to plan more humbly. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Or look at that. If the Lord wills, what will we do? We'll live. Life and death is in the hands of the will of the Lord. Amen. So we recognize that every breath we take is a gift from the Lord. It's a gift from God. James says that we can't claim to be his children and not be submitted to the sovereignty of the Lord. And isn't that really the source of our anxieties? When we get down to it, we, we think we're in control when it is actually God who is in control. And we want to be in control. And when things don't go the way that we want to control them, we get real anxious about it rather than resting in the will of the Lord that God knows what he's doing. If God is in control... And he is the father who gives his children good things. Then what cause do we have for anxiety over what may come? Remember what Jesus said. He told us about this. He said, don't, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Because tomorrow has got enough to worry about. He said, you don't be anxious about that. Cast your cares upon the Lord. James called this, calls this boastful arrogance. How arrogant is it for us to assume that we're in control when we can't even see what will happen tomorrow, when your life is here today and gone tomorrow. Amen. Boastful arrogance. It's pride manifested in, in the way that we just plan our life. And he says all such things are evil because they, can't, they exist in defiance of the lordship of Christ. Look, now, the planning is all over the New Testament. Paul made plans. I mean, in nearly all of his letters, he said, I plan to come see you. Or I plan to revisit you if the Lord wills. 
That's, that's what he wrote. If, if the Lord's willing, I will be there. And I'm sure that Paul came to that through real experience with the Lord. You remember in, in Acts uh, 16, he was going to Asia. He wanted to go to Asia, but he says, the Holy Spirit forbade me from going. And then he turns around, and in the very next sentence, he says they were going to go to Bithynia, but the, the Spirit of Jesus appeared to him and said, no, don't, don't do that. I want you to go to Macedonia. So Paul made plans to go to Asia. He made plans, and then when the Asia plans didn't work out, okay, we'll do something different. We're going to make plans to go to Bithynia. Well, that didn't work out because the Lord appeared to him and said, no, I want you to go to Macedonia. I made plans if the Lord wills. An arrogant man would have said, no, this is what I got on my paper, so I'm going to stick to it. Because if you fail to plan, you plan to fail, and I'm going to do my plan. And, and James says, you, you need to approach your planning with humility. So make your plans, but make them with humility before the Lord, who is actually in control. <laughs> the problem is one of prideful arrogance. And the solution that James gives us is humility before God or humility in our planning. Really, it's humility in our whole outlook on life. If the Lord wills, we will live and do. Recognizing that everything that we have, every breath that we have, every day that we have, it's all a gift from God. And we'll come back to verse 17. That's the next verse in just a bit because it really is the whole point of these passages. But then we get to problem number two. Problem number two is a little bit different. It spirals a bit more severely, but it, it springs from a very similar root. This is in, in chapter 5, verse 1. He says, Come now, you rich. So he's turned his attention from one group of people to another. You, you people who, who make these plans with your pride and arrogance, and now you rich, who put all your faith and your trust and your money. We're going to see as it's not riches that he's condemning, though it's something else. Let's read on. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your, your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Okay, so there's a, there's a certain picture that James is painting here, right? It's about a person's attitude towards his wealth and his attitude towards others. Look at what he says. First off, he tells them to weep and howl because of the ministries or the miseries that are coming upon them. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 2 is where you get right down to it. He says, he begins to lay out the problem. Once again, he's, he's talking to people of faith, people in the church but outside of the faith. People just paying lip service. And it's the kind of thing that been, he's been instructing us and warning us about this whole, in this whole letter. Faith that is genuine. Right? That's what he's telling us to have. Faith that is genuine. It bears a certain kind of fruit. But there are those in the church who are not bearing this fruit, the fruit of righteousness. Instead, they're bearing the fruit of selfish pride. So, in these verses, verse 2, he paints a picture of a person who has the riches of food and clothing, been abundantly blessed, so much so that his, he has excess and what's happening to his excess food? It's rotting. What's happening to his extra clothes? They're being eaten by moths. The Bible teaches us that when we are blessed, there's a reason for it. You're blessed with abundance to be a blessing, to be a blessing to others. Now, certainly the Lord blesses us in order to meet our needs, our immediate needs. 
And those are all blessings from God. But He provides blessings primarily so that we can be a blessing to others. And James paints the picture of someone who would rather let his extra food, his blessing, his extra food rot because he loves his possessions more than he loves people. Rather let his clothes be eaten by moths than give them to someone who could wear them, who would need them. And listen, back in this day, that was a big deal. I mean, you, you only had one cloak or one tunic. I mean, clothes were expensive. Kind of, some of them are today. It just depends on who, what brand you buy, I suppose. But they weren't as readily available. I mean, you, people were wore tattered things. And so he's, he paints a picture of a man with, with luxurious clothing who is just is sitting in a closet being eaten by moths because he just refuses to let someone else who needs it have it. This is a dangerous mentality in our culture. Now listen, I, I, I love capitalism, right? I love it. I think it is the greatest, most prosperous, most equitable economic system in the history of the world. But in this country, in our particular brand of capitalism, we've got this you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of mentality. And while that's, that's a wonderful thing, that's a good work ethic to have, it can lead us into a, it's got a kind of a double-edged sword. It can lead us into the, the trap of thinking, well, I've worked for this, I've worked hard for this, I'm not giving it to someone else who won't work, Amen. who hasn't worked as hard as I have. Amen. Amen. And I, I agree wholeheartedly. There are some times when, when giving money to someone is not the solution. In fact, it, it makes their problem worse. But I think they were often way too quick to jump to that conclusion without compassionately considering the facts about their situation. Mainly because we want to protect what's ours. That's what James is railing against. The thing is, none of it's yours. It's all a gift. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. It's all from God. James says all that wealth, all the piles of gold and silver are going to be evidence against you in the day of judgment. There are people with great need and you're sitting on a pile of money. So I think he's drawing directly from Jesus in the next statement. He says, you've laid up treasure in the last days. These are words of condemnation. This is, this is word of conviction. He, he's, he's putting a judgment on them. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount? What Jesus told us exactly not to do? Matthew 6, 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasures for yourself in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And down in verse 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And James accuses these rich people of doing just that. He says they've laid up treasure on earth, and they're serving the master of money. But back in James 5, we see how deadly this spiral can be. In verse 4, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So they, they love their riches. 
right? And they put their trust in their riches so much that they try to obtain more riches by dishonestly dealing with their workers, by cheating them. Now, this was in a time when you worked for a daily wage, right? So they didn't pay you weekly or biweekly or, you know, once a month. You worked a day, you got paid that day. And if you didn't get paid that day, it might mean that you didn't eat that night or you didn't eat all the next day until you could work and get paid. So by denying someone or cheating someone out of his wage, you're, you're taking food off his table. Verse 5. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. See, luxury isn't wicked by itself. The temple was a luxurious place. It was covered in gold and fine linen. But it's luxury with selfish indulgence. Prideful selfishness that allows you to live in an abundant luxury without having compassion to help those who are suffering and in need. Even though you've been given, you know, the means to help. Even though you have an abundance of food that's just rotting. You have an abundance of clothing that's just being eaten by moths. This problem of prideful selfishness can lead us down a very deadly path. Look in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So now James is saying that these rich people who have failed to be generous, who have clutched on to their, their holdings, who have hoarded it up and, and let their food rot and their clothing uh, get eaten by moths. He says, you, you're now murderers. Now, is he saying that the rich people have gone out to the righteous and with swords and with knives to kill them? Is that what he's saying? Have they put their hand to... No, that's not what he's saying. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is that by their indifference, the indifference that was brought on by prideful self-indulgence... They have committed murder. It's like watching someone drown in a swimming pool and you've got a, a life rope here and, and you're more worried about getting your next cold drink than you are about throwing them the life rope. Amen. Amen. And our laws, we have laws in this country that, that say you are complicit in that person's death. And that's what I think James is saying. You, you had it. You had it. But you wouldn't give it because you're so selfish and so prideful and you refuse to put your trust in the Lord. You say you trust Him. You say He's your Lord, but clearly He isn't. So James offers us a solution to this deep problem. That's back in verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. So we're, we're talking about a great deal of grief here. Amen. Weeping and howling. Amen. It's the same kind of sorrow that the, you see the Old Testament prophets displaying over and over again when they, they're uh, talking about the sin of the people. You know, they would tear their clothes in their grief and sorrow over the sin of Israel. Basically, James is telling... The, these rich, selfish people to repent. And to borrow from what he said back in the middle of chapter 4, be wretched, you rich, selfish 
Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. Just repent of all this. Turn away from all this. That's the answer that James gives. Turn away from this selfish behavior. I told you we'd come back to chapter 4, verse 17. James says in verse 17 of chapter 4, the last verse, he says, So whoever knows to do, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I don't know about you, um, but I find this to be crushing to any sense of self-righteousness that I might have or have ever had. We've been given a very broad standard here. And throughout this whole letter, James has been building to something. And we're building to it also as we work through this letter. But, But week after week and passage after passage, we've seen how James has laid out for us a way to live that is real and genuine and righteous. And week after week, and passage after passage, we have seen how he has reminded us how we utterly fail in living out a real, righteous, genuine life. And at times he's even told us, no human can do this. Do you remember that's what he said about taming the tongue? No human can do it. If you don't tame your tongue, your religion's worthless. Oh, by the way, you can't tame your tongue. And then here today, we go from sins of commission... So having a loose tongue, being, uh, uh, you know, uh, par- showing partiality, um, refusing to do any, any good deed, from sins of commission to sins of omission, the things that we don't do. Not just the things that you do, the, the wicked things that you participate in, but the, the righteous things that you refuse to participate in. Sins of omission. James says that if you know what is right to do, but you don't do it, you have sinned. I don't know about you, I just, I feel the crushing weight of that sin debt. I mean, I read that and I think, man, there's, there's no hope for me if that's the standard. If I, if I know what is right to do and I just don't do it, I'm just, I'm just too lazy, <laughs> or I, I, I fail to have the right amount of compassion that motivates me to go speak the gospel to this person, if I, if, I just, if I fail to do what is right and what I know to do is right, that's a sin. I've sinned and now I deserve death. How often do we choose the selfish road or the prideful path? How often do we ignore the Spirit and the Word of God in these matters? We know what's right, but instead we choose not to trust God and not to love our neighbor, but to preserve what is ours. In, in our planning and with our possessions. You know, I should call that person and apologize, but I don't feel like it. I should go visit, but I'm, I'm not going to. I should probably offer to help, but I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> it's just too much. I know that I should share the gospel but that's an embarrassing, uncomfortable conversation. Boy, talk about sitting on a pile of riches, right? And letting it rot. As the Apostle Paul said, who can save me from this wretched body of death? I mean, I'm utterly condemned. We're all utterly condemned. 
We'll get more into it next week, but I want to leave you on a high note, a little, a little preview of, of what's coming, of where, where James is headed to. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, this, he's building to something. And throughout this whole letter, it's been like, this is the way, and you guys utterly fail. This is the way, and you guys utterly fail. This is what you're supposed to do, but you can't do it. And now he says, if you know to do good and don't do it, you've already sinned. There's just no, what? who can save me from this body of death? This, this verse isn't in our reading this morning because it goes with what's coming. But it's the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore. Now, the therefore is there for a reason. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He's laid all this out, all this expectation and reality, all of this righteousness and our, our proclivity towards wickedness and all of our failures, and he comes to this, therefore, be patient. And now we're back to the affectionate brothers. We're back to the affectionate brothers. Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. He says, hold on, keep holding on, be steadfast, as Paul says, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. Christ is coming again, and with His coming, the redemption of our souls from this sinful flesh. So stay the course. Be patient. Persevere. Hold fast your confession of faith. Didn't He tell us to do that way back in chapter 1? Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Be patient. Your redemption's coming. What a high note to leave it on. Amen? So abandon selfishness, is what James says. Abandon selfish pride. Abandon prideful thinking in your planning. Abandon selfish pride in your, in your possessions. Humble yourself before the Lord. And as hard as that may seem, be patient. Because one day, <laughs> you won't have to worry about that. Christ is coming. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. You are precious to us. Lord, help this word to sit in our souls and, and motivate us with humility, Father. I think that has been one of the overarching messages that we've heard from James is that our pride is just so deadly to us. So Father, help us to kill it. Help us to, to kill it within ourselves and, and get our sights set on you and loving you, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, Father, be with us as we go from this place, and bring us back safely at the appointed time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.